Welcome to part one of three on René Girard's text, I See Satan, Fall Like Lightning. This first part, entitled Mimetic Contagion, uh, for reasons which will be be become clear, uh, this first part is entirely free for YouTube subscribers and podcast listeners, and it will be on both of those platforms. But there will be two further parts, and those will be for patrons only. So if you do enjoy this, uh, you find it helpful, then please find links in the description below for how you can access the other two as they are released. So uh, this book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, uh, written by René Girard, is originally published in 1999 in French and then translated into English and published in 2001 in English. Um, it is an introductory, not an introductory text, but it's often put forward as one of the really great places to begin with Girard's thought. It is surprisingly simple, surprisingly clear for the fact that it contains many complex ideas which really sort of fragment and spiral out into more complex ideas. But it manages, well, Girard manages to really condense this sort of mass cycle of mimesis into very simple language and very simple narratives. And it's uh, an amazing book for that. But equally, it allows the reader in one text to get to grips with both Girard's theory of mimetic desire, the mimetic cycle or mimetic contagion. Uh, these are somewhat interchangeable terms, but I will get to this. And on the other hand, it also allows them to get to grips with Girard's sort of theological writing in terms of his reading of the cross of Christ, of the crucifixion, and of uh, many other uh, Christian, so to say, events in relation to mimetic desire and his theory of mimesis. Um, so this image on this first slide is actually from, it's an illustration from John Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, done by an artist called Gustave Dore in the 1866 edition. But it's uh, one of the best images that I could find for this talk and one of the most powerful in terms of this title. And this title comes from Luke 10, 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So where do we begin with this text? We begin really um, with Girard's theory of mimetic desire. We begin with this idea that the primary identifying characteristic of human beings for Girard is mimetic desire, which means our propensity to imitate others in their desires. Desire for Girard is our potential to imitate our neighbour, the neighbour. Or in abstract, the neighbour, as we will see uh, for those that are familiar with the Bible, you know, the neighbor plays a, a key role, but our potential to imitate the neighbor is this difficult thing. You know, the other, we could take it even as the other. We desire what our neighbor desires. We see that our neighbor has purchased a uh, sports car. And up until that moment, we didn't really have this desire, but that mimetic contagion in a way, that rivalry, which I'll get to, comes into play. And all of a sudden, we desire the object because our neighbor has it because the other has it that is our reason for desiring it 
And from this comes a conflict. This leads to conflict and violence. Because our ability to desire is to such an intense degree that really there is nothing that will stop our attempts to achieve that desire. There was nothing that will stop us from attempting to acquire, to achieve that thing that we see or understand that our neighbour has and we desire simply for the fact that they have it. And that is mimetic desire. And from this, we become rivals with the original model of desire, which ensues into a conflict. We become rivalrous with those who have the other thing because someone has X and it's going to take, you know, time, money, effort to acquire X. But as soon as we see that they have X, we understand that they have this thing, this sports car or whatever it may be. We then become rivalrous because in understanding that they have it, we now want it because they have it. But in that moment of understanding that they have it, we then also understand that we don't have it and we enter into a rivalrous relationship because they have the thing and we don't. But this relationship ends up rivalrous because in our attempts to achieve that thing, we may end up attaining that thing. And in doing so, they become rivalrous of our sort of equality in that moment and thus want to overtake. The rivalrous and the desire is always seeking to sort of outdo the other in that sense, the neighbour in that sense. And this is the conflict. And the conflict sort of builds to such an intense degree that it eventually becomes violent. And for Girard, though it often can come across as simplistic, and perhaps I'll expand on this in the later talks, for Girard, really, this is the primary reason for basically all violence, is at the seat of all violence is something which both parties wanted to such an intense degree that they would do literally anything for it, inclusive of war, battles, violence, etc. But of course, Girard's sort of perhaps absurd, not his absurd understanding, but his understanding of the absurdity of this is that the desire um, emanated was brought about by the mere fact, not for a true desire of that thing, which Girard doesn't really truly have a problem with, but mimetic desire is specific to a desire which is brought about for the simple fact that someone else has the thing. Now, what's next in this chain of events? Because really we need to think of this uh, in this short sort of introductory bit that I'm giving here. We need to think of this as a cycle, you know, and it begins with this, someone has X, Someone else, you know, there's two parties, or there could be more, of course, but someone has X, someone else wants X who doesn't have X, they desire it because they see that other person has it, and they begin into this intense relationship where they'll do anything for it, and that's the beginning of the cycle. I see someone has a sports car, I now desire it because they have it, and that's the beginning of this intense rivalrous cycle. Now, what's next? What comes next is a scandal. Scandal, um, which translated from both Hebrew and Greek means a stumbling block. Right? It's this thing which inhibits one's attainment of their desire. I want the sports car, which simply because the other person has it. But there are these scandals. There are these things which are inhibiting me, or which are in, are stopping me from attaining that thing, of acquiring it, of acquiring my desire, which I now want. Now, 
In such a case whereby multiple scandals, multiple things which inhibit us from attaining stuff begin to compile, and say there's multiple people, multiple camps who all want this thing because the other has, you know, a celebrity has something, all of a sudden the, the entire uh, nation or entire uh, fan base, you could say, wants this thing. But there's all these multiple scandals which stop them from compiling, to, uh, which compile to stop them from getting it. Eventually, the multiple camps let off steam by way of blaming an identified offender. The person who is seen as the cause of this scandal. There is a reason why we can't attain the, th the thing. There is a thing that we want. And as we seek to get it, there is a scandal, something which inhibits us and stops us from getting it. And then we blame someone for that reason. There is always someone to blame for the reason as to why we can't attain the desire which we want. And the person, you know, this person is then seen as the cause of the scandal. And this is called the single victim mechanism which understood in biblical terms, slowly bringing in the, 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 the Bible and the Christian reading here, this victim process, this process whereby this single victim is brought about, you know, from this cycle that I've now spoken about, is the work of Satan, but is also, in fact, it is Satan. Now, this is, um, in this short, sort of short introductory bit, this the, the idea of Satan can get a bit, complicated but there is actually a section on him that's coming up however satan is the father of lies and deceit and as such for gerard he is the accuser he's you know the, the power of accu accusation which finds the victim as being the cause of everyone's troubles there's a reason all of us can't get this thing someone is to blame for that reason and satan is that that accusation he's the accuser he's the person who's saying this person is to blame for everything we need they are they're now the single victim in that single victim mechanism satan is that accusation of saying this person is to blame for everything so from this there is now this contagion of mimetic desire this idea that we all want to imitate the other and want the same thing mimesis and we all desire the same thing mimetic desire um but we've now realized that on a communal level this is completely unfulfillable between all these rival groups who want this same thing because everybody else also wants the same thing that's the reason why we want it uh there's all these scandals and reasons you know, highlight the Girardian terminology. There are all these scandals as to why we can't get this thing. And then there is the accusation of saying this person is to blame for why we can't get this thing, the single victim mechanism. And this identification of the single victim is really where Satan is primarily found, but Satan is found throughout this entire process. He is rivalry. He is the disorder. And yet he is also the accusation, right? He's simultaneously the disorder, the, oh my God, there's all these rivalrous camps um, which can't attain the thing, this complete disorder in relation to the mimetic desire that everybody wants. He is that disorder which has allowed everyone to brew up into this intense, violent sort of hatred that's brewing uh, because they all just want this thing, they desire this thing. He is the disorder, but he simultaneously... And this is where it begins to get a little bit complicated. He is simultaneously the order because he is 
simultaneously the ac accusation mechanism, right? He is primarily the mechanism of accusation and blame. So he brings about this disorder through the rivalrous relationships, but then he sort of deceitfully brings in this form of order. He says, oh my God, you all want this thing. You, you all want this you all have this mimetic desire, you, need, you know, get rivalrous and all this. And then he says, well, here's the reason why you can't get it. And it's this person. This person is to blame. And what does this victim mechanism lead to? What does this single victim mechanism leads to for Girard? It leads to sacrifice. It leads to human or animal sacrificing. And what really is this in abstract? This sacrifice really is the offloading of the blame onto a single ritual act a scapegoating, right? From Leviticus 16, the transference of the sins of the community onto a he-goat, which happens in Leviticus 16, which is then driven out of the community, right? Everything, in very, very short, everything is absolutely awful. Here's the reason why. Here's the person who is to blame for the reason why. You project and offload everything onto this single ritualistic act of this person, and you push them out of the community. And this process leads further to what Girard calls double transference, whereby the victim, the single victim who all the blame has been put onto, offloaded onto, is understood as the cause of the scandal, that thing that stops us from attaining our desire, the sacrifice of whom is equally seen as the cause for new peace and prosperity, which itself comes from the cathartic unloading of communal frustration in the face of scandal. So very quick overview of the cycle so far, because it's, sort of, it's very important to understand this, what's called the, the, the cycle of mimetic contagion. Somebody has a thing, an object. This is how simplistic it is sort of for Girard. And I don't mean that in a crass way. It's a very simplistic philosophy, which is extremely potent. Um, someone has an object, which, which they have, and it's, you know, a nice object or whatever. Everyone begins to want that object for the mere fact that 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 someone else has it, that the neighbour has it. A rivalrous relationship is built because n not everyone can attain the object. From this, there are scandal or multiple scandals, multiple reasons as to why the community can't obtain the object. Then, and, and this so far is all the work of Satan, This from this original mimetic desire, that's the work of Satan, uh, Girard's reading. And then... Because they can't obtain the thing, the whole that someone is blamed. Someone has said, well, this is why we can't get the thing. This person's to blame. This person then, who, who's now we've offloaded all our blame, all our resentment, all our frustration onto this one single victim. They are then taken as a sacrifice. And from this, there is a catharsis because this victim is seen by Girard to have a godlike existence, whereby they are seen as the cause of the troubles, right? They're to blame for everything. They're to blame for the reason I can't have my sports car, but also the alleviation of those troubles in relation to peace and prosperity by way of this mechanism. The victim dedicated for sacrifice becomes sacred, right? This person is now sacred because the key to the order from this disorder is completely now within them. And they actually begin to draw attention from the community and these people who become sacred gain followers. And actually many people would then you know, seek to preserve this victim because they've become this sort of sacred person who can somehow bring about 
order from disorder. And this Fijirad is actually uh, is, is one of the origins of, of kingship. However, um, when we move into myths, myths see victims as inherently guilty. Um, so myths sort of take the side of the, the, the community in this sense, right? So Oedipus has really killed his father and married his mother. Myths for Girard disguise that real violence which is coming about from offloading our blame onto the victim, the violence which is behind it. And the source of myths really is the idea that the victim truly is the source of the scandal and not just a scapegoat for everyone's sort of resentment. And myths always take the side of the community in that sense. Myths are narratives uh, created to deal with scandals. You know, that idea of, well, why can't I have the thing? And this, this, this narrative needs to be brought about as to sort of reason and rationalise why. And th for, the, for all these reasons, this is why the gods of mythology, these godlike people who are brought about as becoming sacred, these are the products for Satan because they're the justification for sacrifice, for violence at the sake of this victim mechanism, right? Um, all these things I'll go into a little bit deeper just in a couple of minutes, but just to finish up this introductory section, uh, just so you have an overview of the cycle so I can sort of draw back into it when needed, um, where does the Bible fit into this, right? We've, we've, I've mentioned Satan, but where does the Bible, uh, you know, and the Christian story uh, at large sort of fit into this? The Bible is unique because God takes the side of the victim. The Bible is the text which recognises the victim mechanism, right? It doesn't take it at its word. It recognises it for what it is, a victim mechanism. With the cross of Christ overcoming mimetic desire and violence through non-violence, love and forgiveness. Right. So the story of Jesus, whereby everyone, you know, if, if we now think about the story of Jesus, this is exactly what happened. Everyone uses him as a scapegoat. The crowds which were to be healed, uh, the disciples seeked his approval, the, the Jewish leaders are envious of his popularity the roman authority desires order and this leads to this communal understanding of jesus as the cause of all these scandals of all the reasons why we can't obtain everything that we want and yet after he is isolated and put to death he's reborn all these other sacrifices which i've mentioned before which i will get to these other sacrifices, um, in later stories, they're stoned to death, or these sacrifices, these, these victims are sometimes killed. And from that killing, even though people haven't obtained what they wanted to obtain, there is a communal catharsis, uh, uh, you know, an offloading of all that frustration as all these reasons as to why you can't get something. You blame someone, everyone agrees it's them, you kill them, you have an emotional offloading and you no longer really have this pent-up frustration towards what it is you can't uh, obtain on a communal level. Um, and of course this is the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is seen by all these multiple camps as the cause of the scandal of scandal and yet you know as he's isolated, unlike these other victims who become sort of martyrs and false gods, you know, everyone else just decided they were gods because they decided upon this. Jesus is reborn. Okay. Thus, he subverts this victim mechanism, right? Because the victim's no longer just used as a justification for violence in that sense, as a justification for everything else that's that's happened. Christ was an innocent victim. He 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 has overcome the victim mechanism which Satan repeatedly uses to justify the expulsion of violence with violence, right? You have this violence that's brought around, brought about 
in the rivalrous relationships towards objects. People get, begin to get violent because they all want the same thing. And how does Satan justify uh, bringing some sort of order, in quotation marks, into this disorder? He says, blame this person, stone them to death or can kill them. And your catharsis is offloaded. So he, he, well, there is a catharsis. And so he justifies, we need to get rid of this violence. How do we do it? We just be violent towards this person. Whereas Jesus, in rising from the dead, as proof of the word made flesh begins a new teaching, right? Um, apart from the mechanism described by Gerard, he, he really turns this victim mechanism on its head. Um, the Bible reveals the innocence, right? Therefore, not only of Jesus, but it, it, it reveals the innocence of all similar victims and that the victim mechanism, it reveals that this victim mechanism for what it is, as I said, a product of Satan, right? Which keeps the cycle whirring. The revelation of the scapegoat in myths never happens, right? Myths are sort of always on the side of this. And yet the Bible tears back the curtain, allowing us to see the scapegoating mechanism at work, right? These these people, these single victims become the scapegoat for everyone's problems. Um, and a few dissenters, Jesus's disciples, for instance, don't succumb to the mimetic desire of the crowd and proclaim the innocence of the Lord, of the victim. Um, and yet, as Gerard says on page two, in fact, he says, in mythology, there's never a dissenting voice. The myth the, well, he, he says, in mythology, no dissenting voice is ever heard. Jesus has a few disciples in, a cra in the crowds, though many of them do succumb to what I'll get to is called mimetic contagion. But he does have a few dissenting voices, right, to say that he's innocent. You know, uh, there's an innocence of this victim, that Lord Jesus Christ is innocent. And yet... There is, in mythology, in myths, never a dissenting voice. Myths is on the side of the victim, the single victim mechanism. Takes it for what it is. Takes it as if it's entirely true that these uh, these people truly are to blame. So Jesus' willingness to die for the truth makes the entire cycle of sat satanic violence visible, opening the way for the kingdom of Satan to give way to the kingdom of God. So that's sort of the introductory, the introduction of the cycle of mimetic desire, mimetic contagion with a few of the religious elements thrown in. I will very briefly, there's a, there's a fair bit of repetition in here because Girard takes this same cycle over and over and over again in many of his books actually, and brings in different things which really expands upon this cycle. There is a object, everybody wants it for the mere fact that everybody, the other people have it. This brings about rivalrous relationships as everybody begins to do what they can to obtain the thing. Uh, eventually, people will realise that they can't obtain the thing. They'll they'll get very rivalrous. They'll do anything to get it. They can't obtain the thing. So they need to find something to blame. And there are scandals. There are reasons and, and things and hurdles and buffers and reasons why people find, which people find for as to why they can't obtain the thing they want. Somebody is then blamed for all the reasons as to why people can't obtain the thing, the scapegoat, the single victim mechanism. This person is then sacrificed. In olden times, quite literally, sacrificed, as in they are killed, stoned to death at a communal killing, and this offloads this emotional, uh, there is, an, there is, a, there is a, a catharsis in relation to this. And people, people that, you know, the, 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 Desire is dissipated for a time. So, 
We then head into, uh, let me just double check. Uh, it's the, do, 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 do. the, yeah, part one. Chapter, well, you could, no, not chapter one, part one. Uh, the biblical knowledge of violence, uh, which begins with part one, uh, scandal must come. Um, and I should say that introductory passage, many of that was taken uh, from the brilliant foreword and introduction by James G. Williams. Uh, sorry, just the foreword by James G. Williams, uh, which is just a, a really erudite and articulate overview of the cycle. So, but now we're on to uh, part one, the bib biblical knowledge of violence with... Uh, part one of part one, if you if you like, scandal must come. So Gerard begins here with the Ten Commandments, stating that commandments six, seven, eight, and nine. So six, thou shalt not commit adultery. Seven, thou shalt not steal. Eight, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. And nine, thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife. Um, all um, forbid an act. Okay? Um, now, whereas Commandment 10, Commandment 10, pardon me, I was just double-checking I got them all right. Um, Commandment 10, you shall not covet the, the house of your neighbour, you shall not covet the wife of your neighbour, uh, nor his male or female slave, nor his ox or ass, nor anything that belongs to him, which is Exodus 20, 17. Uh, these all forbid a desire. So there's this forbidding of acts. Don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness, right? There is this forbidding of acts, whereas commandment 10 forbids a desire, okay? The Hebrew translation, in fact, of covet is simply desire. The desire of Eve for the forbidden fruit, leading, which leads to original sin, is such an example in biblical terms. Um, the desire prohibited by this 10th commandment is not seen by Gerard as in relation to some marginal desire, but this is desire as such. If such a desire was permitted, says Gerard, then the door would be open for the for the the famous Hobbesian nightmare of war of all against all, uh, and as such, this desire seeks to resolve the primary problem of all human communities: internal violence. And we've seen the reasons as to why such violence comes about uh, in terms of Gerardian theorizing of this, which is from uh, coveting of coveting other people's objects, of wanting things for the mere fact that they want them. Um, and to prevent fighting, this commandment seeks to forbid all objects of which they fight. But it's of the neighbour in this commandment, which is of strict importance, states Gerard, for it is not the object itself which brings about our desire. Okay. Uh, but the fact that it is the neighbours, that is mimetic desire. So it, it's not the fact that we want this object. We want the object because somebody else has the object. Uh, the value of the object for us is not, therefore, considered... We don't consider the object itself as valuable. The value is brought about for the mere fact that the neighbour has it. Okay. And Gerard states on page 10, Our neighbour is the model for our desires. 
This is what he calls mimetic desire. Our neighbor is quite literally our model for our desires. We see, we see that they have X, Y, Z. We now want X, Y, Z. Why do we want them? Not because we actually want X, Y, Z, then we may, but we primarily want them because X, Y, and Z are owned by our neighbor. That is mimetic desire. Mimetic desire. So the 10th commandment makes it clear that even though mimetic desire doesn't always result in conflict, the envy I have towards my neighbor's acquisition of an object brings about what was earlier called scandal, right? I have this envious relationship. I have this reason as to why I can't uh, have this thing. And a rivalry is brought around, a rivalrous relationship with my neighbor. But the acquisition on behalf of those who desire the object of their neighbors only bolsters their neighbor's valuation of the object, thus increasing the intensity of the mimetic relationship in relation to rivalry. What do I mean by that? The neighbor has X. If it does come to pass that I eventually in, uh, acquire X, that this then bolsters their valuation of X and they might want more of it, whatever it may be, or they might want a better version or a bigger version. And this, of course, then bolsters my uh, sort of jealousy and rivalry in relation to that object. And the whole cycle really intensifies into a mimetic relationship of rivalry. And thus, the more individualistic we become, the more rivalrous we become. And these actually, this actually for Gerard develops cults which turn to hatred and violence, or inner violence. And it's this principle of desire which, for Girard, is really, as I've said before, the principal source of violence between human beings. And Girard notes the fact that the commandment forbidding a desire is after those condoning violence, right? For the Decalogue condones the urgent things first, right? The violent effects before turning finally to the causes. You know, before we're saying, look, look here's why you do these things, saying, Here's why you don't commit adultery. Here's why you don't steal. Here's why you don't bear false witness, etc. Here's why you don't do these acts. Oh, by the way, there's a reason why you do do these, but we gave that we gave that last, right? We gave the cause last because we had to get the urgent thing. Don't be violent first. Um. Anyway, so Jesus does not ask us then to imitate him out of self-love, of narcissism, right? As many... Many would interpret his uh, didactic teachings as re resentment to prevent people from having a good time. This is often the the view of Christian rules and you know regulations and laws and commandments is well, they're just trying to stop us from having a good time. This is done out of uh, a love which turns us away from this rivalrous relationship with things. The desire Jesus seeks for us to attain is his own desire, the one which shall lead us to resemble God the Father. Uh, he imitates the Father and asks us to imitate him, which greater than imitating a great guru, you know, a human, is the imitation of God, right? The imitation of other individuals would actually only lead us to rivalry, uh, to mimetic violence, and thus more violence and internal violence. Um, autonomy, as it's commonly understood, is an intensification of our reflection of our mimicry, our egotistical belief in our own ever-growing efforts of imitation. However, even if, Gerard states, mimetic desire is the cause for almost all violence, we shouldn't be hasty to eradicate it entirely. Because if we did so, our desires would only be fixed on predetermined objects and models. Right? Our desires would never change. There would be no freedom. Mimetic desire is surprisingly intrinsically good. Mimetic desire is what allows us to escape from the animal realm. And I would, I would say, just to bring my own thoughts on this in for a very brief moment, this is much the same as the understanding of free will in relation to 
uh, Christ and the Lord. Um, it you know free will brings about much 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 bad you know much much awful horrendous stuff in the world, but for it to be fixed, everything falls flat. There's no longer any good, any reasoning, you know, any any human good, any true uh, imitation of God in relation to things. Uh, there can be no faith. There can be no belief without that. And I believe these two things really do um, have a mirror in a certain sense. So <clears throat> going back to the cycle of mimetic violence, Girard turns once again to the Gospels, uh, this time to the Passion, and to the fact that the social contagion of mimetic desire unifies the social body's reactions against Jesus. As I said, everyone in the crowd was against Jesus. Um, for instance, Peter, whose devotion to Christ one can't question, he is immediately overwhelmed by the contagion of the crowd and turns against Christ. Right? He's he's sort of subsumed into almost this this human bacterial infection of contagion and overwhelmed to, to the extent that he, he just agrees with it. You know, he, he denies Christ. And Girard states that those looking to Peter as an in individual are wrong to do so. They must look beyond Peter for the causes of him denying Christ. For if we were to read what happens with Peter in his denial of Christ, purely psychologically, we are attempting, Girard states, to say that we would have act, we would have act, acted differently and arguably that we are above mimetic desire. So he's saying that a purely psychological reading, you're, you're distancing yourself, you're bringing yourself out of that social contagion which is happening at that moment and saying like, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. Whereas you're not looking at this major mimetic contagion which is happening. Um, and one too can look at uh, Pontius Pilate, motivation for crucifying Jesus. It's not actually a personal belief, but the fear of a riot which causes his decision. He's caught up in that same mimetic contagion. So... The moment of the cross, of the crucifixion of Jesus, is the moment whereby a thousand, a thousand mimetic strains sort of violently smash into one another, converging against Jesus alone, converging against the scapegoat, converging against the single victim, using or utilising this moment as a means of universal scandal and victim mechanisation. Right? Jesus even states, you will all be scandalised because of me warning his disciples, they will all succumb to the contagion of mimetic desire and of the crowd. No one is immune from the contagion. If they have succumbed to scandal, for the intensity of scandal only exacerbates itself until the moment a victim is chosen and sacrificed. Pilate understood this when he attempted to substitute Jesus for a Barabbas, right? understanding that the crowd could not be pacified without a victim. Pontius Pilate knew this and he, he wanted to sort of replace it in. And then he knew they needed this, 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 this sort of say symbol, this victim to offload everything onto. However, by the, this point, the veracity and the unanimity of the contagion had made a collective decision of offloading everything onto Jesus. They made a decision that he was the victim and no other victim would suffice to sort of appease their multiple scandals at that point because everything's very personal. You have to remember everything's extremely personal at this point because the reason all these rivalrous relationships come back uh, has, has come about is because everyone has their own reason, their own scandals, their own uh, problems as to why they can't obtain what they want to obtain. And of course, everyone in the crowd has their own individual things, but this, this coalesces into a, into a collective agreement 
And so within the Gospels, both in the death of Jesus and the death of John the Baptist, we find a cyclic process of disorder and its re-establishment via this single victim complex, uh, single victim mechanism. So finally, we turn to Satan. So here Gerard turns to the mimetic cycle of the Gospels. And for this, he must turn to Satan, or in Greek, the devil, uh, Diabolos. So Gerard states that despite his considerable role in the Gospels, modern Christian theology rarely takes him into account. Satan, alike Jesus, also seeks to have others imitate him, but not for the same reasons, quite obviously. Firstly, Satan seeks to seduce. He seeks to seduce us into abandoning all inclinations in defiance of morality and any prohibitions. It's Satan who makes us see prohibitions via the lens of that aforementioned curmudgeon, right, who believes that people are just, you know, Christians are just trying to stop us have fun. That's the lens that Satan wants us to use. And if we listen to Satan, which many people do, modern world, in fact, if we listen to Satan, we may feel liberated. We may feel liberated, but such liberation doesn't last long as we enter into a state where we now no longer have any protection from rivalistic imitation. And thus, we no longer have any protection from mimetic desire. As such, our liberation is always thoughted and never enough. Liberation from that first moment, as, we'll get, as, I'll, as, I'll, as I'll show in the second part of this, he who casts the first stone. Once that first stone is thrown, once that first liberation comes about, liberation is then an eternal rivalrous relationship. You can never have enough liberation. There's no such thing. It doesn't. It doesn't last long. And this is the this satanic highway, if you like, which begins extremely open. You know all these all these prohibitions which have been thrown away. All these. Um, things which we always wanted to do this whole thing's just now opened up it begins extremely open of course the world you know the world seems emancipative and liberatory but it quickly tightens whereupon uh appears obstacles of course between us and our object of desire much like the same mimetic well it's the very same mimetic cycle once again we want things. Satan has opened up all these prohibitions and uh, inclinations and we're defying all our morality and we want all these things. But all of a sudden, there are scandals once again. There are unexpected obstacles between us and our object of desire. Our object of desire, which we desire primarily because only because somebody else has it. And we notice that it is, in fact, Satan or one of his surrogates who shows up to block the route, right? to block... Satan is also the scandal. How can this be? How can it be that Satan is both the seducer and the adversary? This second Satan, the same one, the adversary, is the conversion of Satan into a rival. For once prohibitions are transgressed, further and more intense obstacles are still developed. And this whole cycle, you want something, Something's in the way, you finally get it, now you want something bigger and more, and now something bigger's in the way and more, and this literally a cycle that just keeps going and going and going. Behind this cycle, 
which doesn't have an end because you finally just transgressed it and gone into the kingdom of Satan and you're just continuing on and on and on in terms of desires and rivalrous relationships and violence. This whole cycle, which does not have an end, is behind this is Satan. On page 33, Gerard states, Satan sows the scandals and reaps the whirlwind of mimetic crises. So here we turn to one of the mysteries of the Gospels. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan prohib prohibit his own liberatory seduction, as I've just spoken about? Why and how is it that Satan is both the liberator, but equally he is the adversary? He's the person who's blocking that liberation. So we turn to Mark uh, 3, 23 to 26. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. On page 35, Gerard explains this. The Satan expelled is that one who ferments and exasperates mimetic rivalries to the point of transforming the community into a furnace of scandals. The Satan who expels is the same furnace when it reaches a point of incandescence sufficient to set off the single victim me mechanism. In order to prevent the destruction of this kingdom, Satan makes out of his disorder itself, at its highest heat, a means of expelling himself. So let's try comprehend this idea of Satan expelling Satan or, uh, how, you know, as Jesus states, how can Satan drive out Satan? So the divided, scandalized community, this rivalrous community, uh, is at the moment of its peak mimetic process, right? That moment of the peak of mimetic process where all rivalries are extremely intense, you know, everybody just wants this thing. No one can get it. There's all these scandals in the way no one can get it the absolute peak of the mimetic process of you know this this burgeoning hateful violent crowd which which re-establish a unity amongst all themselves you know they all want this one thing they might have the very different scandals they re-establish a, a unity against a single victim who becomes the supreme scandal this person is to blame for everything everyone holds this one to be guilty so satan is he who persuades the contagion the crowd, the community, that this guilt is real, right? That this person definitely should be guilty. They are to blame. Satan persuades everyone, this one person is to blame for all your problems. And in this manner, the moment on the, on the cross, the moment of Christ on the cross, is the moment when Satan consolidates his power. It is no longer all against all as it was prior, just prior to that peak when everyone was absolutely rivalrous and ready to tear everyone else's face off in terms of, you know, why do you have this thing and I don't? Why can't I get this thing? It's no longer all against all, but bang, it's all against one. Jesus, everything is this person's fault. Satan persuades everyone that it definitely is this person's fault and this person 100% should feel guilty. And so... All this disorder, which is now in the kingdom of Satan, this burgeoning, hateful, destructive disorder, which, of course, Satan can't allow to continue forever because that would just mean the destruction of his entire kingdom. And he doesn't want that. 
So what does he do? He has this burgeoning hateful disorder, which he, of course, loves. So how does he sort this out so that his kingdom can continue? He puts enough order back into the world to prevent the destruction of his kingdom, right? And how does this happen? That single person who Satan says, they are absolutely to blame. You're completely right in in understanding as a crowd that they are to blame. So we should kill them. We should sacrifice them. So once satiated by the blood and the violence of the crucifixion, of the sacrifice, the crowd, what happens? They return to daily life, right? They're, they're satiated by it. It was enough of a sort of a, an emotional cathartic release that they go back and Satan's kingdom continues to whir on, right? The father of these people is the devil because they want the desires of the devil and not the desires of God. The devil is their mimetic model. So Jesus and Satan then are two entirely opposed models of desire. The former, Jesus, being a model which never has obstacles and desires because it doesn't desire anything in a greedy or competitive way. Do not covet thy neighbours you know, commandment 10, don't cover, be happy for your neighbor, you know, you don't desire anything in a greedy or competitive way, right, and this is all to do with the 10th commandment, but the latter, Satan, which is the intensification of desire, complete with scandal and then victimization and then violence, right, the two opposed modes are models, as Gerard would say, of desire, if we do not imitate Jesus, our models are only living models of the world, which is the world of the devil, of the of Satan. And we thus become them, right? And ironically, Satan imitates Jesus's model, but he turns it upside down and undertakes it in the spirit of arrogance and rivalry for power. Satan cannot sustain himself. He's only a parasite on God's creation, and all he creates is a mimetic caricature of the kingdom of God, which is why he's constantly in that turbulent relationship where he constantly has to bring about this horrendous violent order to appease the disorder and the cycle continues the way out of the cycle is to imitate christ in the sense of his own mimetic model of desire one which isn't greedy or competitive it's loving forgiving so this was the first talk on René Girard's I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Um, if you've enjoyed this, if you've got something from it, um, then parts two and three will be up within the uh, within the next month, both of them. Uh, they are, as I say, for patrons only. Um, so all members also... Uh, members who sign up for via the memberful of hermetics.net so both those links will be in the description below um for the five dollar a month we'll get you access to those things and uh many other exclusive pieces of comment uh, content and there is also links for you know the twitter and the discord in the description below uh but thanks for watching and i hope you enjoyed